you know, what do you want to do? And he said to me, no, I want to be um, a big businessman and, uh, and I want to make, you know, I want to make a lot of money. And, and I said, oh, you know, yes, you'll, if you study hard, you'll do that. And he said, I want to make money uh, and I want to become a big businessman because I want to help my, my community and I want to take care of the poor people. And I was just, you know, shocked to hear this answer from from a little boy who's basically forced into this and looking after his family and still have this altruistic spirit and compassion in his heart to be thinking about others, you know, like it, but to put it in context of this being in the context of a war that's raging and, you know, his family going hungry and he still had this, this compassion and this commitment. I mean, it was just, it gives you an idea of basically what you see in the country, um, despite everything people have endured. All the time I tried to keep in touch with him just to check on him. And at one point, um, you know, colleagues were saying that he was still in school and rolling, but, uh, but I lost touch. And so you always think about what happens and what happens to, you know, to, to children and, you know, and their futures and, and how are they going by, um, but yeah. humanitarian crisis in the world unfolding before our eyes, before the eyes of the global community. And it is hard to understand the human psyche and all the aspects that come into play when it comes to paying attention and keeping the momentum going. And this episode is dedicated to Yemen and to everybody who is alleviating some of the pain, some of the distress, some of the life-threatening circumstances in Yemen. People who are fighting for a better life for people in Yemen, for sustainable improvement and for ultimately for the end of the war. And today we're going to hear from three different people who are doing exactly that and who are really helping people to understand the Yemeni circumstance. And I'm so excited about this episode. We're going to learn a lot about the border political history and what it has to do with the current situation in Yemen and about two incredible women who helped and still help in the humanitarian response towards all of these traumatic happenings. My name is Hala Murshid. I came from Yemen. She's the founder of the Yemeni Austrian Organization for Empowering Women and Child in Yemen. My name is Lisa Lenz Ayoub and I'm a PhD researcher at the um, Institute for Social Anthropology at the Austrian Academy of Sciences. And Lisa has been working on a major project on Yemen since uh, 2016. And finally, I was lucky enough to talk to Shabia Mantu, a UNHCR aid worker who worked on the ground in Yemen and also was a spokesperson for the Yemeni cause and global communications. Um, so I was working in Yemen covering the 
the Yemen crisis for about two years, and I spent about one and a half years in the country. And Shabia will give us some background and context on what it is like to work in Yemen, what is the scale of the humanitarian need, and what her day-to-day looked like, and all the stories she remembers from people in Yemen and her experience in the country. We will focus particularly on the humanitarian side and the humanitarian issues that are beyond our perception, quite literally, because there is no accurate response to the vastness and extent to the humanitarian need. The conflict in Yemen is very complex and has many different roots, and today we're going to analyze one particular factor that played into the turbulence eventually of many other factors resulting into the war we unfortunately see today and that is the border dispute between Saudi Arabia and Yemen and the reason why understanding the border dispute is helpful to understand the whole situation is because we're going to learn about tribalism and the organization of tribes about the relationship between Saudi Arabia and Yemen, how the Houthis gained the power they have today, and about misleading narratives that we hear in context of the border dispute, but also in context of the war in Yemen. So please keep in mind that this border dispute is not the reason for war. It is simply one of many, many factors that did contribute to a very tense situation and gave way to power dynamics that eventually fostered the crisis. My uh, PhD topic is the border between Yemen and Saudi Arabia from a local perspective. To understand the conflict in Yemen, it is very important to understand the workings and the concept of tribalism. Tribalism is a very contested concept, I would say. In the social sciences, especially in anthropology, the concept of tribalism today is regarded as defunct because it was often used by colonial powers to categorize people into predetermined groups in order to control and to subordinate them. That's why there is a certain negative connotation to the terms tribes and tribalism in the West in general, I would say. Um, However, if we look into northern Yemen, anthropologists found out that tribalism in these northern and very remote areas is a concept of social self-representation and social belonging used by the people themselves. Tribe in Arabic Kabyle is highly connected with concepts of territory and genealogy. So it's about knowing about your ancestors. And for centuries, the tribes in the north of Yemen have lived relatively autonomously from the central government and its political and economic influence, at least until the fall of the Yemeni imamate in the 1960s. In the central and southern parts of Yemen, however, tribes are perceived very differently. Um, They are often associated with aggressive and brutal wars and tribal feuds and as being backward. Lisa points out that already within Yemen there are huge differences in the perception and the standing of tribes within the society and of course when it comes to border discussions and border disputes there's always two sides and two different parties involved and she says that 
the border tribes from Yemen and Saudi Arabia, they have a long history of trade, social ties and kinship. In contrast to Yemen, the Saudi king has, since the establishment of the Saudi state, pursued a politic of weakening tribal autonomy in order to generate support for the king and the Wahhabi cause. So I would say the basic difference is that tribes in Yemen's history had more autonomy uh, and local political strength, whereas in Saudi Arabia they were more integrated into the state's system. The first um, bilateral border treaty between Saudi, the Saudi Kingdom and the then Yemeni imamate was signed in 1934 after a short war between Yemen and Saudi Arabia over the provinces of Asir, Najran and Jizan. At this time, the border definition was very vague and temporary. It only really concerned the borderline of the western part of Yemen today, and it was based on pre-existing tribal boundaries. So two years after the signing of this treaty, a border demarcation committee demarcated the international border with simple stone pillars that could be moved around easily. So then the need for a strict border between Saudi and Yemen was not really evident, and it was not seen as something that has to be organized in a forceful way. It was very fluid and flexible and tribal activities and interactions between both Saudi and Yemeni tribes were not really affected by this new border demarcation. A second phase in the Yemeni-Saudi border dispute started roughly in the 1990s when the Saudi Kingdom increasingly regarded external factors allegedly emanating from Yemen as threats to Saudi national security. These perceived threats were illegal migrants, smuggling business, weapons, drugs, terrorists. So the Saudi government shifted its border policy from an open, porous border to a clearly defined, permanent and also controllable border with Yemen. After decades of tensions and negotiations, the Treaty of Jeddah was signed in the year 2000, which meant that the border was now territorially redefined and also totally demarcated by exact geographical coordinates. In a third phase that took place partly parallel to the second um, phase, to, the, to this total border demarcation, the Saudi regime did not um, consider it as sufficient to only demarcate and control the border with a high number of border guards patrolling along the border and by erecting a number of border checkpoints. But they also started to fortify parts of the border with a concrete wall. This fortification project hasn't been finished yet because it correlated with the war of the Yemeni government against the Houthis and also caused major resistance from local border tribes that are living on either side of the border. Um, and then the political takeover of, the, of northern Yemen by the Houthis, or the Ansar Alam movement, and the participation of the Saudi-led alliance against them, the border region has become uh, since then an empty battle zone. On the Saudi side of the border, the villages were um, evacuated and the residents resettled. On the Yemeni side, a majority of the local political elite was expelled. 
So um, we have the poor civilians that cannot afford to leave and we have the soldiers from very different groups in the Yemeni war fighting now in the border region. I asked Lisa why the border policy has shifted from one of alliance and kinship to an empty battlefield, as she says, and why the border has become increasingly important for both states. The core problem is, of course, the struggle over territory. Um, territory that is important to both sides, um, historically, but also because of natural resources. Um, and then from a state perspective, I, I would um, maybe differentiate between a state perspective and a tribal perspective. Um, from a state perspective, the question over the right to rule these three provinces that, I, that I've been mentioning, um, Asir and Jizan and Nashran, these three provinces remained a critical point uh, until today. Because you will still hear many Yemenis and also politicians that consider these lands as being legitimately part of Yemen. And uh, Saudi Arabia seems to be afraid that one day Yemen will regain the political and also military strength to reclaim those territories. And that's why they invested so much in establishing patronage uh, linkages with the border tribes. And that's why the border tribes are uh, play an important role in, in, that, in that whole dispute and region. Looking at it from a tribal perspective, Lisa says that The international border partly divided tribal territories and thus brought social separation upon many tribes, which often comes hand in hand with economic deficits. However, the international border agreement allowed border residents to cross the border freely with special permits. On the other hand, she says that many tribes gained additional financial support through the Saudi government. And these two perspectives can also intermingle in one and the same person because tribal sheikhs um, in the north of Yemen often have um, also positions in the central government. And this fact in turn is one major reason why the Houthi movement has emerged. So the, um, this political and economic strength of northern uh, tribal sheikhs. I was wondering how tribes organize themselves and how this funding can actually go to a particular tribe. These um, payments, they started already in the 1930s. The money was just distributed by Saudi ministers, by something like the um, secret services to the important shares. It, it, it is also important to say that not all of them profited from that, but only some influential persons. Um, that could then strengthen and expand their political influence in, in their local environments. Lisa told me that one informant reported that since Saudi Arabia entered the war in Yemen, these payments have stopped. At first glance, it might be hard to see the linkage of tribal sheikhs gaining power and the Houthi rebels who are now controlling, unfortunately, large parts of Yemen. But... Lisa is going to tell us how these two phenomena interlink. The Houthi is a, is a religious political movement that emerged in the 1980s, 1990s. As I said before, the, the political strength of the northern tribes um, provided the floor 
an uprising of, of the Houthis. Um, I would say at least in its beginnings was a movement for the marginalized. So when these influential sheikhs from the north were uh, heavily involved in the new Republican government starting with the 1960s uh, after the fall of the Imamate, they received this additional support from the Saudi and also from the Yemeni government. And for the ordinary tribesmen, but also for non-tribesmen, they were excluded from political participation and also from major access to economic resources. So for them, little has changed since the fall of the Imamate. And this social and economic discontent combined with religious dynamics led to the rising of the Houthi movement, which is a Shiite Saidi branch of, of Islam as a reaction to radical Sunnism that was brought in, into Yemen, but then themselves, um, they, they became radicalized during the war. In the political context and when it comes to reporting about Yemen, we often read about a term that raises many questions whose validity we have to question, and that is the framework of the Yemeni war being a proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran. As you will hear from Lisa, this is very, very simplifying and does not reflect all the nuances that come together in this war. I think these labels of um, proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran or proxy war between yeah, the Sunni, Shia, Islam, they are, as you said, yeah, very general and very um, simplifying. A colleague of Lisa, Marike Brandt, wrote an extensive analysis on the rise of the Houthi movement in Yemen and all of the complex causes that caused this inner political crisis that ultimately, together with the border conflict, with many other factors, resulted to the situation we unfortunately see today. And she writes that it is that it could be rather seen as a rhetorical proxy war, meaning that um, since Saudi Arabia had entered the war in 2015, the media predominantly uh, reproduces this Iran versus Saudi Arabia or Sunni Shia proxy war narrative. Um, without doubt, these regional powers and the, the religious aspect play a significant role. And um, also Iran and Saudi Arabia, but also other states uh, have sunk more and more into the Yemeni chaos of war. But this war definitely has its original roots in inner Yemeni political and historical developments. So tensions and conflicts, as I said before, already started in the 1980s, 1990s, when um, Saudi believers felt threatened by Sunni radical religious developments and um, also felt marginalized socially, politically and economically. And then they started to form their own group and political religious agenda. And then they received um, support from, from other um, regional powers. It is important to see both conflicts, uh, the border dispute and the Houthi conflict as two distinct phenomena. So we can conclude that the border dispute did not affect the actual conflict much, whereas the war against the Houthis had much influence on the border region, since it unhinged this traditional system of border protection between the border sheikhs and the Saudi government. I asked Lisa if resolving 
the border dispute would actually affect the inner political stability and ultimately foster peacemaking in the country. I would say it's rather the other way around, um, referring also to local people that I've talked to. Um, they, most of them say first there must be an inner Yemeni solution and then we can establish better cross-border relations and, and cross-border solutions. Hala Murshid is a Yemeni woman who has founded an NGO in Vienna called the Yemeni Austrian Organization for Empowering Women and Child in Yemen. And she's going to tell us about the humanitarian need that we are facing in Yemen. You know that Yemen has been under the war since 2014. And according to United Nations, the Yemeni humanitarian crisis is the worst in the world. So 80% from the population, they are suffering, they need help and support. Um, we have a lot of problems, but I can focus on uh, main problems without, no, without going in details. The first problems may be the high of uh, prices in Yemen. Uh, the people has no money or the salary of the employee doesn't come every month. Sometimes it's, uh, they are waiting six or one year to get their salary. It's the high pricing is very uh, big problem. And also the, um, the lack of food, uh, some food they are, not, uh, they are not in the market. And even, uh, even also the safe drinking water. And we don't have in all the Yemen safe drinking water, and this is causes a lot of diseases. Our uh, healthcare sector almost collapsed. Even the medicine, sometimes it's uh, finished from the market, so they're suffering. In many areas in Yemen, they have no electricity. They spend all the all the time uh, with dark, no light. Especially this in Aden and Hodeida, they are too hot. Sometimes the temperature reached to 45, and really some people they are dying because of the hot, and with with they have no fans, no air conditioner, no electricity. Uh, if you have a car, you need to wait next to the uh, oil station six or ten hours. And we have in Yemen uh, something funny. I don't know. Um, um, gas and oil station for uh, women's. And for men, for women, they, they, they help them to become more hairy, yeah, and they respect women more. And for men, sometimes they spend two or three days waiting, yeah, in the car. They live, they live two, two days sometimes in the car. It's long, long lines, sometimes maybe 20 kilometers. And this is really big because when there is a problem for oil and gas, most of people stay in home. They don't uh, move. They don't uh, go anywhere. And 
the salary, as I tell you, the employees working and they are going every day there to the work, some of them, but with no salary. They're already uh, getting late and late between three, six, one year. Hala tells us how she came to Europe and what encouraged and inspired her to found a non-governmental organization to support women in Yemen. I came with my f family in to Austria uh, since 2013. Uh, my husband uh, was working in Yemen embassy and we spent here uh, five years. I was with Diplomat um, uh, families and cards. After that, I applied for uh, permanent residentship. I got it with my children, so I will stay here and do my best to help my country. Uh, I'm graduated for English department in Yemen. And now uh, I try to do something positive for my, uh, for my country with my friends. So we decided to create a non-government uh, organization. We call it the Yemeni Austrian Organization for Empowering Women and Child in Yemen. My friends really they help me and we we do we do uh, positive things step by step we're still growing together with her friends Hala started the non-governmental organization in April 2019 and they have a very unique concept that I cherish very much instead of just send money and uh, to buy food or drink, and this is not enough. We need to create something better to help, especially the women and the children. So we speak with our friends in Austria. We have friends, they are doctors here. Uh, they travel to Yemen, to Yemen to work there for a while. And we have also the women Yemeni here. Uh, we have different uh, international peoples, they support us. Uh, we start with five persons, but now uh, we almost reach 30 persons. They are donated every month. So Hala's NGO doesn't send money, but they buy products that help, especially women with children in Yemen, to make money off that product for a longer period of time and thus make the aid they provide more sustainable. And through the network they have established in Yemen, through friends and all the people that reach out to people in need, they are able to provide help in various regions throughout Yemen. Sometimes in Aden, sometimes Atay, sometimes Hudayda, sometimes in Sana'a. Uh, we don't give them uh, totally money, just we buy the things, the machines, the material and we make um, um, con a contract, a kind of contract, because we control them after three months, four months. We go and visit them again, and s we see how they are improving, what's the difficulties they face, something like that. With the help of this network on the ground in Yemen, they can go visit women with children and ask them what sort of skills they have and what they can make money off and what they need. Yeah, actually, uh, we discovered through this period that we have a lot of Yemeni women. They have really talent and they have skills, mm -hmm. but uh, they don't know they, they are uh, really amazing because most of the time they depend on their husbands. But once there is a uh, difficult or uh, hardship, um, they discover themselves. Many women, they have these talents and they don't know. 
uh, when we ask them and encourage them, sometimes we advise them. Yeah, you can change, not always swing machine or something, uh, other things. Uh, we have bought maybe seven or eight uh, swing machine for these women. Most of them, they have children mm -hmm. because this is our major to help the mothers who have children. And they start make um, dresses and they start uh, sell this uh, product and uh, gain money. Uh, when, when they gain money, they can sometimes pay for their rent, uh, buy foods, buy drinks, sometimes also buy medicine. I know sometimes it's uh, good, sometimes we also we, we buy, buy machines and uh, some accessories next to the machines, like fabric. Yeah, some, some machines need some kind of um, accessories. Uh, some of women, they are talent with makeup and hairstyle, and but, but they don't have money, uh, so they need all of these accessories. We we buy all of these accessories, and they start from their home, and they make uh, a lot of. Um, if they have a parties or weddings, they they take care of this and they start uh, get money, and this is good. Yeah, and instead of just send money for food or uh, water, I think this is maybe finished after one week. And with the help of a very effective and simple method, they have found a way to keep the women they support motivated and keep helping them to pursue their talents. We discovered that when we take money uh, just a little bit after three or four months, they have this um, um, responsibility to be uh, to finish work, uh, to to uh, not to stop, not to f disappoint if there is some problems. Sometimes we told them if you finish and uh, we can just again um, uh, give you an again again money and support you again and again. I asked Hala why it is particularly important to her to support women and children. Uh, actually, you know, in the less development country or in third country, uh, the women and children, they are, they are the weakest part in society. This is because of many uh, reasons, but especially if I would like to s speak about that in war during this period of war, the woman uh, faces uh, many uh, difficulties because most of uh, Yemeni women in Yemen, um, they don't work. Uh, a few of them work, but maybe 60%, they depend on their husbands and uh, fathers. During the wars, many fathers and husbands and uh, sons, uh, the women, they are lose uh, the fathers and the husbands, and most of them die. And they also for the financial term, most of them getting divorced. And a lot of men, they are arrested and they are kidnapped. And so the, the problem for women, suddenly they discover themselves, they should be responsi responsible for their families and their children. And this is um, hard because there is no chances for work. And that on top of a healthcare system that almost entirely collapsed throughout the war and leaves many pregnant women without any health care. Most of them... Um, Walking through the pregnancy uh, period and breastfeeding period, they don't have this uh, kind of good quality of take care of their health, and not also not good food. So this uh, this causes a lot of diseases, and we have between two or three millions women that are suffering from malnutrition because of the lack of food. And even they don't find to buy sometime a medicine because they have a, a lack of financial. 
If we speak about children, many boys and girls, they are coming out of schools. Uh, we have four million children, they are get getting out of schools because they need to work to help their mothers. So no time to school or to study. Uh, also in the war, uh, we have 10,000 schools, they are destroyed. And also we have the boys, uh, they use them in um, use them in fighting and involve them to, to fight in battles. And sometimes they gave salary to their mothers in order to take their sons to help them in fighting. And this is really sad because we need the, the children uh, finish their life as a normal. In addition to these circumstances, there is another phenomena, particularly in the countryside of Yemen, that is making women, girls and children in general very, very vulnerable. We have this uh, phenomena in Yemen, uh, the early marriage, but uh, during the war period, the early marriage is getting increase and increase because the family could not take care of their daughters, so they forced them to getting uh, married. And sometimes they don't, fi they, they they are not able to finish the secondary school or the university. But thanks to NGOs like Halas operating in the country and making sure that women are empowered and that they have a chance to earn money independently from any family members, there have been a number of women who have been able to benefit from that and who have made very, very successful businesses out of the products they've been given. We have one case, uh, just remember, uh, we help her. Uh, she asked us uh, to help her, to support her. She really wants to finish her university, but she has no money. And when we ask her what kind of help you want, she asked uh, she ask us to buy a laptop and graphic design machine. She, uh, she starts work on these machines and gain money and from the money she, she could uh, help to finish her university. Really we are proud of her and we have a lot of like this examples. Also we have uh, one, also one mother, she's still young, she has a one small baby. Uh, she has no money and she won't work anything. When we ask her what kind of uh, support you want, she has, she told us she has this talent in crochet. Uh, she has this talent, she do a lot of amazing things and she need money to buy milk for her uh, two years boy, two years baby. And also we help her and when we see them, they are getting better their chances. Uh, really we feel uh, we could help a little bit if it's uh, if it's small um, uh, small th things or humble donation but really it touched our heart when we see they are getting better and better And now we're going to hear from Shabia Manto and you, Hello, an HCR aid worker who worked on the ground in Yemen. I was based in Sana'a, in the capital, but I would also um, go and go. We had other offices, field offices um, in different parts of the country. So we would regularly go to those offices as well uh, and work from there and provide support. 
And I was there during the, uh, you know, hostilities where we're raging, unfortunately. Um, but we were very much um, witnessing and seeing the, the humanitarian crisis unfolding on the ground. I asked Shabia to describe the situation in Yemen when she was there. So Yemen, uh, even when we were there, when I was there, it was still being called the world's uh, largest humanitarian crisis based on the number of people that were in need. And I remember I started covering uh, Yemen in 2016 and we saw the numbers increase, you know, from initial projections, I think, of 17 million people in need. Then it was 19 million people in need, then 20, 21. To date, there are 24.3 million people in need, which is the overwhelming majority of the entire population. Um, and so, you know, for each year that the war continues, humanitarian needs were, were accruing and, and you would see it. I mean, we we were based um, in the country. So whether you're in the capital or you're in different governorates, you would see people begging on the streets. You would see um, buildings that had been um, affected by hostilities. Um, every every month, I remember in the office, we would get a notification of, of the death of a, a relative of one of our colleagues and they would be dying either from um, stress-induced causes or other causes. And it was just, uh, I mean, you would see the, the effect of, of the conflict On, on everyday civilians. Um, so people, I mean, were being displaced. People were having to flee their homes. They were living in makeshift shelters or they were living in, in places that were abandoned buildings or hospital clinics. They were staying with other members of the local community. So the, the local Yemenis themselves, even though they were being affected by the conflict, they were still generous in helping out other other of their, their um, country women and men. And, uh, you know, and, and you would see, I mean, so much destitution, so much hardship, people just trying to stay alive, people... Um, trying to avoid the bombs, the bullets. Um, it was very intense. And while all this is happening, um, you've got active conflict, you have a humanitarian crisis, you had a worsening economic situation, and then you had uh, health uh, emergencies as well. When I was there, it was cholera, and you had floods, and you had the transmission of these these diseases, which are quite easily preventable and treatable, but they were uh, sort of um, rapidly Uh, rising because there was a lack of, of essential services such as um, water, sanitation, public health. Um, you had uh, hospitals that were working beyond capacity and really overstretched um, children out of school, teachers who were, were not being paid their salaries but would still turn up to work. So it was, um, I mean, a very, uh, it was in your face in terms of seeing the whole situation unfold. I was wondering what it felt like to live and work in a war zone and what everyday life looks and feels like for anyone living I mean in a conflict zone it's a it's it's a really incredible um, incredibly difficult and challenging situation but for us I mean at the end of the day we're, we're just there to sort of support humanitarian efforts to try and and contribute but um, but you put it in perspective and for me I mean I I think of all the people that that are living this war um, they're not numbers it's not about you know just the people in need these are these are people with families with futures with hopes with opportunities um, that they want we're looking forward to realizing but And they've been affected by a conflict beyond their control. And the thing is that, you know, as aid workers, we come in, we go in and we try and, and support, but we are from, you know, we, we have our homes to go back to, but people are, are stuck there and they're facing this conflict. So you feel very passionate about your job and passionate about raising awareness as to what's happening because you hope that by raising awareness and raising attention, there'll be more um, public and political will to resolve the conflict, to end the crisis, to 
really help Yemenis go about with their lives. I mean, they've been affected by conflict for years now and, you know, the situation is continuing. So you just hope that by by doing your job and by supporting people affected that you can kind of make a difference. But it's really, um, you know, you, your primary concern is, is people who are there and, and sort of solidarity uh, and empathy and trying to support them. What is the UNHCR doing to help people in Yemen? I mean, there are so many needs, but in, in Yemen and in terms of what UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency was doing, was um, really supporting people who had been displaced, um, people who had been who've been forced to flee their homes. So this includes refugees and asylum seekers that were already in the country. Um, and they were mainly from Somalia, but also from from other countries. And there were about 250,000 of them. So it was making sure that um, as refugees and asylum seekers, they were still being assisted. They were quite vulnerable. They're not nationals of the country. And at the same time, they were also millions of people of Yemenis who were forced to their homes and they were um, uprooted in different parts of the country so we were also assisting them and their local communities uh, and because they they had fled with with nothing essentially just the clothes on their on their backs and their shoes uh, some of them we would see many who had fled for days and they didn't even have shoes um, or basic uh, water or or anything um, but it was really providing them with essential relief so um, things like emergency shelter um, and household supplies so that they could start a new life in displacement. Um, for those that were in in urban areas, we'd also support buildings and uh, and, and shelters where they were were residing to make it a bit more habitable and also um, ensure that they were adequately protected. We also provide a whole host of protection services, um, helping people who've been displaced uh, access documentation because without documentation you can't access essential services you know from healthcare or even just showing your identity but also legal support um, to um, services for survivors of, of, of violence as well um, and also psychosocial support like counseling because people have been through very traumatic ordeals and a very traumatic condition, um, but helping them as well through that. Um, but really looking at a whole host of, of different kind of material assistance, but also what we call legal um, protection support as well. One of the big questions I am honestly still trying to explore, and I think many people are trying to explore, is how it was and is still possible that there is so little attention when it comes to the crisis in Yemen and what we can do to change that. Yemen is often referred to as the forgotten war. I've heard it many, many times. Um, would you say that it is still, and and also while you were there, it was, it felt like so, so urgent, but the, it didn't get the attention it needed also from media and in terms of the, the vastness of the humanitarian crisis happening there? A hundred percent. I mean, definitely when, when, uh, in the early days of, of the conflict, um, but as the situation was sort of unfolding, um, there was very little attention on Yemen, and we actually used to actively say that. I mean, in terms of us humanitarians on the ground, we would say, this is a forgotten crisis, this is a neglected crisis. It was very, very difficult to get global interest and attention as to what was happening there. And we were trying to diagnose that and ask ourselves, you know, why don't people care? And I would speak with um, with journalists, with uh, members of the public, with, with media, um, with different sections of civil society. And uh, and a lot of people felt, you know, this was a regional problem. They also didn't know much about the country or the issues. 
So we were actively trying to get more attention and coverage and tell stories um, from the people who are affected by it, just showing people this is what's happening and this is why you need to care. But I have to say, I mean, personally, I've seen um, an exponential increase in the amount of tension. And I think it's sadly also reflective of the fact that this is a really horrible, massive crisis where so many millions of people are, are affected now that the world just simply can't afford to ignore it. Um, and also the role of the media as well in bringing attention to, to what's happening on the ground. I think it, it's it's still very hard for people to cover the crisis, to come into the country um, and for, for people on the ground to tell those stories and bring them out. So I think there are challenges, but I do see, um, you know, there's, there's more attention on that, which is certainly what was the case a few years ago. Shabir reflects on why it might be hard for people to imagine and comprehend the extent of this crisis. There were a number of different elements, but I think it was um, the visibility of, of, of that region and um, and what was happening there. There wasn't much familiarity, um, uh, you know, as to why why this was happening and how, and how people were getting affected. Uh, there was um, very difficult for international media to, to cover it, as I, as I had mentioned as well. But also, I think when you look at the movements of people and people who are being affected by the conflict, most of those um, affected remain within the country. We only saw a very, a very small amount of refugee movements coming out of out of the country. And I think it was, I mean, in the initial days, I think it was just around 60 to 80,000. Um, and it's probably somewhere like that. So there hasn't been a huge uh, cross-border outflow of people because most people um, who are affected are are just going to the neighboring governorate or fleeing elsewhere. It's very hard to flee. It's also quite, it's difficult, it's challenging, but also, I mean, the country is surrounded by sea and, and land borders and it's not very easy to, to cross. So I think um, the fact also that in the global north, people were not seeing those refugee flows to their countries. I think that also um, helped kind of desensitize or kind of, uh, It didn't have the same impact as if we would if we had, would have seen those movements. So I think geopolitically, um, it wasn't viewed the same way as other regional crises were viewed in terms of their implications. Um, but we were saying, you know, this is, this is something that the world does need to take notice of because, um, you know, you can't have a crisis of this magnitude unfolding. It's uh, it's also an issue for global peace and security. And then when you um, When you have the, this crisis, you've got not just humanitarian needs, but the destabilization of a country. Um, it's of interest and of, it should be taken into account. But I think there were a combination of factors that basically hampered some of the visibility of the crisis, at least in the early, early days. We know that it is so important to present a crisis beyond the numbers of people affected, beyond the statistics, and to make sure that people's stories are told. And Shabia tells us how they did that and what positive effects storytelling can have. We view ourselves very much as having an obligation to to try and 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 tell those the stories of people affected to give them um, to ensure they have the opportunity to to show what's happening. So it's it's going beyond the numbers, but also showing the impact of the crisis on on the people that are being affected by it. So it's trying to to give visibility to to the very human impacts of the crisis and to help you know refugees tell their own stories. So we would um, produce videos where we have. I mean, we had one woman who had lost uh, and of her children unfortunately in the conflict and she was talking about 
you know, how she lives now um, with that loss, but also the fact that she she doesn't even have time to grieve because she's trying to feed her family um, in the absence of any income, but also they're being displaced. But um, but telling those stories of, of people, we had uh, another woman who had, um, unfortunately, um, cancer and she was affected by the conflict and also displaced and trying to access treatment. So these are heartbreaking stories, but they give you an idea of, you know, these are the people who are paying the price of a conflict they have no involvement in at all and, and showing, you know, just how how unfair and how dire the situation is. Um, but that, you know, this is why it's necessary for this conflict to be resolved and also to support uh, humanitarian needs as well. So I think, you know, telling the stories uh, as much as we can, but also telling uh, the news from the ground, because it's important to show, you know, when when people are being displaced or to show exactly what the needs are to, to get support for that. And also to, um, you know, if you're there and, and you are involved in the response, you have an obligation to also um, speak about humanitarian needs and, and draw attention to those issues. And unfortunately, many of these people cannot tell their stories yet. And Shabia will share some of her stories and some of her experiences that she made in the country with the people of Yemen and all the emotional memories that she has. Um, honestly, there are just so many. I, I you know, it's a uh, It's one of those places where I think if you go to Yemen, you will just fall in love with the country and, and the people um, are some of the most nicest you know, people on earth. I know it's very hard to generalize, but I honestly cannot um, overstate the, the hospitality, the generosity and the kindness of people, despite everything they've been through. Um, but there were so many, so many remarkable stories of, of uh, you know, of, of hope, of resilience, of generosity that I that I witnessed and experienced there, um, seeing uh, the determination. There was one one um, particular story of an individual we met. He, he was a little boy who was at, um, who was at primary school and he, um, he would be in the evenings um, with a little weighing scale. It's a scale that you, you weigh yourself, you know, to check your weight. And he would carry this around And he would go to this this restaurant, and this was in Hodeida, a governorate on the on the west coast, which was also a center, a flashpoint of conflict. And in the evenings, he would just sit at this uh, on the floor um, outside this cafe with his weighing scale, and he would put that on the side and try and get people to weigh themselves, and then they would give him them him the equivalent of like a penny or something. But while he was doing that, he had his with him from school and he would do his homework so basically he was studying in the evening while trying to make a, a few you know some some meager income from this this weighing um, business and I went up to him and I and I spoke to him and I said you know why why are you out this evening why are you out here it's you know is it unsafe shouldn't you be at home and he said no you know my my mum is sick and I have uh, other siblings to take care of so basically I need to make money To, to help them you know and it's I mean that's that's so tragic no child should ever be you know be forced to be in that position to be a breadwinner for their entire family but they were you know affected by the conflict as many Yemeni families were and so this little boy was trying to to support them and he basically you know was also so committed to his studies that he I mean no one forced him to study he just really wanted to to work and I would see him a couple of times and he would always be with his textbooks And so one day I said to him casually, um, you know, so I guess, you know, you, you want to be, what do you want to be when you grow up? Do you want to be a doctor or a big businessman? Or, 
you know, what do you want to do? And he said to me, no, I want to be um, a big businessman and, uh, and I want to make, you know, I want to make a lot of money. And, and I said, oh, you know, yes, you'll, if you study hard, you'll do that. And he said, I want to make money uh, and I want to become a big businessman because I want to help my, my community and I want to take care of the poor people. And I was just, you know, shocked to hear this answer from from a little boy who's basically forced into this and looking after his family and still have this altruistic spirit and compassion in his heart to be thinking about others, you know. I, I just, I have not met, you know, any other child at that age who, I don't know, I mean, it was just... Like, it, but to put it in context of this being in the context of a war that's raging, and you know his family going hungry, and he still had this this compassion and this commitment. I mean, it was just it gives you an idea of basically what you see in the country, um, despite everything people have endured. But there are countless stories. I mean, for me, that was a story of hope. But I I think about him all the time. I tried to keep in touch with him just to check on him, and at one point, um, you know, colleagues were saying that he was still in school and rolling. But uh, but I lost touch, and so you always think about what happens and what happens to uh, you know to, to children and all the, you know and their futures and you know how are they going by. Um, but yeah, what is it like to know that the war in Yemen is still raging? It's never easy to to leave a place um, where you're working on humanitarian response, but to leave knowing that a conflict is still raging and that your colleagues that you leave behind are still there having to, to live that and also all the people in the country continue to face this. So I think, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's, um, there are no words to describe that. I think um, it, it's, it's a, it's an indictment on, on the part of, of the international community that conflict continues in, and not just Yemen, but many countries where civilians year after year are just facing something beyond them. Despite all of the hardship Shabia had witnessed during her time in Yemen and during her time covering the Yemen crisis, she remembers her time in the country very, very fondly. You know, I mean, I was just struck by how beautiful the place was when I when I got there. And I feel also very privileged to have been given the opportunity to visit Yemen um, because it's not uh, with, with obviously the conflict, but it's not a very accessible place. But it's one of the most breathtakingly beautiful places on earth with its um with its scenery i mean with the people with its culture its civilizational legacy and uh and i hope i have the opportunity to go back there once again and i always say you know when the war is over and the country um is able to hopefully just continue and and rebuild um you know the tourists will flock there i mean there were tourists before but it's just it's a it's a jewel it's um it's a very special place in the world and also in, in definitely in my heart. Knowing all that we have just learned from Shabia, what is there to do to help and to change this incredibly dire situation in Yemen? There are so many ways to, to help and, and also to to support. I mean, if you know, not everybody is able to financially support and contribute, but if that is an option um, for some, um, there are many Uh, aid agencies, including UNHCR, that are working there on the ground and um, and supporting people in need. So, you know, that's that's one option. But beyond that, I mean, it's really um, mobilizing support and awareness raising, keeping informed as to what's happening there, um, sharing news, sharing stories, 
um, the more attention there is, especially among the general public, I mean, the more momentum it helps keep on the issue and also to, to push for resolution um, to the conflict, but also to support the humanitarian response. Um, so you can keep, keep on top of news. Um, you know, there are humanitarian organizations there but there's also a lot of reporting now on international regional but also Yemeni um, networks as well but um, you can also follow UNHCR Yemen has has a, a Twitter page and a Facebook page there are updates on what's what's happening in terms of the displacement situation, the humanitarian situation. Um, there are other aid agencies there. And also, uh, most importantly, um, the Yemenis themselves who are telling their stories. So try and look out for them and help amplify uh, those voices. Um, that's, you know, that's what uh, we can do in, in different ways. Um, but really just to keep attention on the issue and, and not to forget um, what's happening there. Thank you to everyone for listening to this episode, for paying attention, for caring about the cause and for informing yourself about this very important issue that is so pressing. And I hope you learned something from this episode and I hope you took something away from it. And of course, if you have the resources, you can consider donating to any of the many organizations, non-profit organizations that offer aid in Yemen. If you do not have the resources or if that is not the way you want to contribute, then maybe you can consider sharing this episode with a friend, with a colleague, with anyone you like. This way we can make sure that we keep the momentum on Yemen, we keep the attention on Yemen and we can eventually make a big, big difference. So feel free to share it wherever you want and make sure to tag at Tumul Podcast so anyone you share it with can also see pictures of the lovely women I got to interview. The cover art for this episode was again created by the wonderful at Happy to Borders on Instagram. Thank you so much. And thank you to all my wonderful guests for this episode. I will leave all of their links and information on my Instagram account, at Tamul Podcast. And yeah, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate your attention. Thank you for listening. And I'll see you again very soon. Take care.